You're listening to episode 108 of 88 Cups of Tea with Yin Chang. Am I doing this right? <laughs> Hi, I'm your host, Yin Chang, and thanks for joining me on 88 Cups of Tea. This podcast is created to leave you feeling motivated from interviews with storytellers, where we learn how they create opportunities for a successful career without losing sight of the values that make us human. Woo, that was a really long run on sentence. Hey, what's up, storytellers? Um, happy NaNoWriMo month. Many of our listeners have checked in to share that their first day of NaNoWriMo was quite the success. I am so proud to hear that some writers in our community really jumped on the adrenaline from the first day and wrote past their word count goal. If you want to be a part of our community where you can check in about your weekly NaNoWriMo progress, I really encourage you to join our private Facebook group and jump in on the conversations happening right now. Head over to facebook.com slash groups slash 88 cups of tea. We seriously have the most encouraging and supportive members in our group, so you don't want to miss out on this. Come over and hang out with us at facebook.com slash groups slash 88 cups of tea. In today's new episode, we have Maggie Shen King, author of An Excess Mail. In An Excess Mail, she explores the marriage plot in a dystopian future and follows in the footsteps of Margaret Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale. It's the story of one excess male, the less than perfect family he seeks to join, and the fight for their version of home, for the freedom to be their true self and for the country they've lost to a totalitarian regime that aims to control sex and define the boundaries of marriage in the name of the public good. I've been really looking forward to this conversation with Maggie as her story is inspired by actual statistics. China's one-child policy was originally implemented to control overpopulation and according to stats, by the year 2030, they'll have unintentionally created a society which more than 25% of men in their late 30s will never have married. In our discussion, Maggie shares more insight into China's one-child policy, one of the most radical social experiments in history. She walks us through the research process for writing in excess mail and the importance of targeted research to prevent the loss of writing time. Maggie belongs to two different writing groups, and we dive into the benefits of joining a writing group and how they've helped her tremendously in her writing journey. We also talk about the importance of having an editor to help move your story along. And for craft-focused writers, we cover how to improve your world building as a linear writer and what a style sheet is and how it can help you create dynamic characters. Now let's jump right in. Hi, everyone. We have Maggie Shen King with us today. She wrote an excess mail that came out in September of this year. And I'm so excited to have Maggie on the show. Maggie, how are you? What's up on this lovely Friday afternoon? I'm so excited to be here. I would love to kick off by starting a bit about you and how you first fell in love with writing. I grew up in Taiwan. I lived there for the first 16 years of my life. My parents put me in an American school that catered to military kids and Mm. expats. I was thrown in there at the age of five and it was total immersion. I really didn't know English at all, except for an alphabet primer where they taught me, you know, A is for Apple, B is for Mm Rome. I could recite a few of the alphabet words, but that was it. And so I started there (laughs) and it took about a year and a half before I turned the corner and understood things in class. But before that, It was a lot of looking over the shoulders of my fellow students to see what was going on, what to do to follow the teacher's instructions. That 
was how I first learned English. So they also sent me to a Chinese school in the afternoon. So after I finished the American school, I would go to Chinese school and finish up the day there. And I got some tutoring. My parents were very into education. Consequently, I am bilingual and my Chinese is not so good, as you can tell, but I can read and write with great effort. And I moved to the United States when I was 16 and lived in Seattle, went to high school there. And then I went to college in Boston. Always loved loved literature and I was an English major in college and I took one writing class. My thought then was I should go into business and get a job and I'd like to be a writer one day, but I didn't quite know how to get started back then. But it was something always in the back of my mind. And I actually started writing a little over 10 years ago when my youngest child started middle school and I had time on my hands and it was one of these do or die moments. There's something I kind of want to do. And I should just try it. So I started sitting down and writing. Fortunately, I live right next door to Stanford University, and they have a fabulous writing program at night through continuing studies that are taught by Stegna Fellows. So I've taken classes from Nancy Packer. I've taken classes from Eric Puckner, from Thomas McNeely, Otis Hoshmeyer. It was such a thrill to take classes from them and learn. That's how I got started. From my first Stanford writing class, I met a bunch of writers And we formed our own writing group, read each other's work every month and critique. After I took those classes, this is how I got motivation and feedback, encouragement to keep going. We're going to unpack that a little bit more later in the conversation because most of our listeners are writers and they always love hearing about writing groups and if you recommend them or not. And it sounds like it's made such a huge impact on your writing career and your writing journey overall. I would love to jump into that later on. The college you're talking about, you went to Harvard, right? I did. I love how humble you are. You're like, so I went to this college in Boston. I bet your parents were showing off like crazy. They were very, very happy that their investment in this radically weird education paid off. I'm a relatively late bloomer, right? Here I am with my first (laughs) novel and I'm not that young anymore. (laughs) That's still so awesome. It is a dream come true for me, so I'm thrilled. That's all that matters is you did it. So you grew up in Taiwan. Where in Taiwan? My dad's from Taiwan. Taipei. I just went to Taipei two winters ago. I went with my girlfriend to visit her mom. It was absolutely beautiful to go back and visit. The last time I went was 10 years before that. My mom's from Malaysia, so we would go to Malaysia more often to vacation. I don't know what the heck took me so long to go back to Taiwan more often. I'm like, what have I been doing? What have I been thinking? I should have been going back every year. Taiwan is beautiful. We were traveling a bit around Taiwan and visit her grandparents in Pingdong, all the way in the south. See a lot of the island. Yeah, I know this sounds so ignorant, but the very first time I went to Taiwan as a kid, I just remember the delicious street foods. All the shopping was super fun because the main place was Taipei that I went to. When I went back with my girlfriend, we did an intensive tea study course and we were brought all over Taiwan, especially in the central area, the Sun Moon Lake area. It was my first time realizing it and seeing it for myself with my own eyes. And I was blown away because I never realized that Taiwan, even though they're an incredible metropolis, my gosh, their nature is breathtaking. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I didn't get to go to that. But I was seeing brochures everywhere and I really wanted to go. So that's going to be my next destination. (laughs) When I read your bio, it made me miss Taiwan and really made me want to go to Taiwan again. Yeah, it's a beautiful island. There's nature, there's 
beach. Yeah. And then you know, Taipei itself is New York to the 10th degree because there's yeah. more people, more traffic, That's true. more buildings, more everything. Absolute city life. And also better food. And the food is just <laughs> extraordinary. And I gained a lot of weight when I was there. I think I reached my maximum that I've ever been just from being in Taiwan because I was eating bowls of luro fan and all that stuff just for breakfast. It's shocking how much food is available. Even at lunchtime, they'll bring you out a little bento box. Chicken, beef, there'll be egg, there'll be... I mean, this is lunch. I know, I know. That's why people here eat like this every day for lunch. The crazy thing is everyone's freaking skinny in Taiwan. That's what I don't understand. I could never imagine driving there. I'm going to have a heart attack driving because already in the city, driving in New York City, I'm okay with it. Like you said, it's just so many more people in Taiwan. The motorcycles are zooming everywhere. That's true one element we're not used to paying attention to. That is very, very true. You're talking about school, how it took you about like a year, year and a half to start to adjust in when you're five years old. For me, it's funny. I was born and raised in New York, but I was sent to ESL because my grandma, my dad's side, raised me when my mom and dad were working. So she only spoke Taiwanese and Mandarin to me. I didn't really know how to speak English. So when I met my mom's dad, my grandpa, he only knows how to speak English and sometimes Hokkien, of course. <laughs> So he's trying to talk to me and I'm, huh? Like I didn't even know what to say. So I was sent to ESL, I think for the first year or two in mm -hmm. elementary school, just so that I could catch up with my English. And then finally, I understood what people were saying and got the drift, ended up not having to be in ESL. It's funny to me that I was born in New York and I still had to go to ESL. <laughs> How long did it take you to acclimate? Honestly, I would say probably two years. I was painfully shy too because I got picked on a lot, I think because my English wasn't that good and I would have an accent. I do remember when kids would make fun of me a bit. It does sometimes either slows down the learning process or it speeds it up. So it depends on the personality. I understand your pain because I felt that too. You were acclimating in Taiwan. Those kids should realize they're in Taiwan. It should be you being like, uh-uh, you don't know how to speak Mandarin or Taiwanese. What's wrong with you? But for you, it took you about a year to acclimate? A year and a half, I A year and say. a half. I mean, that's pretty fast though still. For first grade, had A, B, C, D, E classes. And they put the brightest kids in the A class. And because, I don't know how they got what? away with doing that back then. I started out in the E class. I think they moved kids around. By the middle first grade, I moved up to the A class. No, oh my God, that's so amazing. <laughs> I was like, okay, that's when I figured it out. Go you. That's so awesome that you jumped so fast. How was it acclimating in Seattle when you moved at 16? Was it super easy transition because you already learned the English language? The transition actually was not hard for me because oh, nice. I was going to school with the idea that one day we were going to move to the United States. And then I saw oh. it in the, the military kids who stayed for two years and moved on to another army base. And so there was movement in the community and I had that in my mind. And so when I went to the U.S., to Seattle, I spoke the language fine. I had no problem catching up with classes. So it was just a social piece. And once I met a few friends, it was fine. I think the hardest was for my mom. She didn't speak much English and my dad had a business in Taipei, so he stayed in Taipei. And so it was up to my mom to shepherd us around and do everything that needed to be done to have a family in yeah. a foreign country. I remember her bringing me like a stack of mail. Half of it was junk mail. 
And I was like, just throw that away, throw that away. And she would have a freak out and say, no, you read me every single thing on this. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I was a kid and no patience for it, right? We got talked <laughs> about this piece of junk mail. It's a huge sacrifice what my parents did for us. I don't know Absolutely. that I do it for my own kids because imagine going to the other side of the world. Your parents are so selfless. Yeah. They yeah. sacrifice everything. Your family already planned. Was it like a long plan that they were eventually going to definitely bring you to America? for the schooling and opportunities or was it something that just came out of the blue? It was definitely a long-term plan because they started us off in American school. Okay, so they threw you in the American school with a long-term plan of already right. knowing. I see, I see. I just thought they thought maybe throwing you in an American school would be like a step ahead by learning both languages, English and Chinese, to strengthen it and maybe better opportunities in Taiwan. I thought maybe that was the reason, but I didn't realize they already knew throwing you in at five. I don't think they really knew that we could actually leave. Um, oh, okay. Of getting visas and they have two-year conscription for the boys. So they weren't sure they could get my brother out, but they put us there with the hope of one day moving the children to the United States. Oh, your parents are so amazing. If and when I have children in the future, I don't know if... I could make that sacrifice. I guess I'll know when it comes down to it. They say you just never know. Don't say you what you will or won't do when you don't have kids because you're going to end up doing the things that you don't think you would ever do. Maggie, thank you so much for diving into that with me. I thought that was so interesting. I do have a quick question about how you said it was not too bad acclimating in Seattle. My grandpa are always going on about how American school system is so lackluster compared to everywhere else in the world. I would say the math curriculum was so much harder at the Chinese elementary elementary school that I was attending. I was an A student in the American school. Yes. And then I went to the Chinese school. I'd be like a D student. <laughs> well, part of it was because I wasn't there all day. And to learn to write the characters, you got to write everyone 15 times kind of to learn it, right? Yes. So I yeah. never actually had that repetition. Plus, I was so far behind in math. <laughs> By then, you had to take SATs already. Yeah, I took my SATs in the United States. You probably got like a 1600. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> no. You're like, yeah, girl, I got a full 800 on my math for sure. How was your time studying at Harvard? Was that difficult or was that very challenging and fun? Because my middle sister's in Yale and I was just going into her school visiting her and I just couldn't imagine that kind of pressure of schooling. I'm very much the artist in my family. My <laughs> sister, she's like, I love it so much. I also go party every night in addition to going to Barcelona and then also listening to the Nobel laureates. I'm like, all right, if you can handle it. I gotta say it's so much harder now getting into these Ivy League and elite schools than it was when I went through. I mean, I don't know if I could get in these days. I'm pretty sure you can. I do hear that it has gotten a lot more competitive, but yeah. I do still think the difficulty is still there. It's still just as difficult. I don't think it's more difficult. I think it's still as difficult as your time. It was very humbling going to school with all these really, really bright people. I used to be at the top of my high school class with some effort, but not super great effort, right? And I'd never gotten a B before. And, you know, I get my first B at Harvard. You know, welcome to the real world, right? Yeah, that's so funny. Yeah, my sister too. She's like, oh my God, I failed this test. I'm like, what is your fail? An A minus. She's like, 
Yeah. I'm like, oh my God. All right. And she, but she did get a B for something and she was devastated and really upset. She did say something similar. She's like, yeah, I didn't realize how hard it is. And even though she loves it, she did say, you think you're doing okay from high school, but she felt everyone is smarter than her. It's just that she has a lot of energy and a lot of extreme enthusiasm and passion in doing work and activities outside of school. So I think that helps to balance her or else it would probably drive her crazy. I would love to swerve it back to you. I promise. I'm so excited because I really want listeners to hear more about an excess male. Could we jump into it and kick it off with like a summary synopsis, however much or little that you want to share with us? An excess male is a novel set in a near future China in the aftermath of its one child policy and the cultural bias for male heirs. In this book, 40 million men are unable to find wives. And the government has mandated that its families demonstrate patriotism to help solve the crisis by taking on additional husbands. It started as a marriage plot with a twist with a male protagonist at its center. And a story of this one excess male and this less than perfect family he seeks to join and the fight for their version of home, for the freedom to be their true selves, and for the country they've lost to a regime that aimed to control reproduction and define the boundaries of marriage in the name of the public good. I could just imagine a lot of the listeners like, whoa, that sounds so good. Before we go into more detail, could you go into the one-child policy? For me, what I understand about one-child policy, this is an actual law that was implemented in China for those listeners who may not be aware. From what I understand, it was to try and limit the amount of resources that were being used in the country because there's just so many people in China. Please correct me if I'm wrong. It was implemented in 1980 by Deng Xiaoping. Prior to that, Mao encouraged everyone to have as many children as possible because he thought more people meant a stronger China, bigger China, more productive China. After the Great Leap Forward and the massive famine, it was problematic. And by the time Deng Xiaoping came around, he realized that in order to have the kind of growth that he envisioned, they had to prevent a population catastrophe. And so the one-child policy was implemented around 1980 to control populations so that there would be enough resources. And it was supposed to be a one-generation measure, but it actually went on for nearly 40 years. In one way, it's like the most radical, longest-lasting social engineering experiment in all human history. What happened was Chinese people preferred to have sons. To put it bluntly, they were like a pension plan. <laughs> I mean, yeah. Well, that number one, they carried on your family name. Mm-hmm. So they made sure your family continued. But sons also take care of you in your old age financially. And they are your family. Whereas daughters, you give away, they marry mm-hmm. you, they're no longer yours. Because of that cultural bias, everyone preferred to have boys. In the beginning, there was infanticide. Infanticide, girls after they're born sometimes drowned, killed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I heard about that. Given away. But after, I think it was around 2002, if I'm not mistaken, when GE invented a portable ultrasound machine that can go into the rural villages, it was very easy to figure out the sex of the unborn child, then a lot of abortions occurred. By then, they really could select the sex of the baby. And the gender ratio skew went out of whack. So a normal gender ratio would be something like 106 boys to 100 girls mm-hmm. born. And in some parts of rural China, it got as bad as 130 to 100. 
Wow. When you think of yeah, like a, a billion population of a billion and people are selecting to have boys. The problem's huge. So the statistic is by the year 2030, 25% of men over 35, and that's like 30 million people, will not have married, won't be able to find a wife. So 30 million is almost the population of Canada. That's how big. Thank you for putting that into perspective. So if you think about population that's so, so male. It's like men at the prime of their lives, testosterone fueled. They're more prone to aggression and violence and criminal activity. Or if you swing to the other end, if they're depressed or dissatisfied, it's just a very problematic societal makeup and composition. That was very much appreciated for you diving into that. I know my community is now really ready to just dive in now. What inspired you to dive deeper into this? What scared me was how realistic it could be, what you wrote, the way you thought everything out. I'm assuming it was haunting you for a while to want to write this. Well, I was in between books. My first book was done and I was looking for an agent for that first book, which I never quite got off. So I was looking for an idea and I read about the story in the morning newspaper, basically. And it was a lightning bolt that struck. (laughs) In this case, the reality was stranger than fiction, right? You think about all these unintended consequences and the way that they enforced the birthing policies in China. It's just fascinating to me. And if you think about balancing it as a mathematical equation, you could bring in more women from foreign sources, or you can export some men, or you can ask women to take on more husbands. That's true. That's true. I thought the third was probably the most provocative. (laughs) (laughs) I did like that choice. I was looking on your website and there was a section for discussion guide. And I didn't know until I came across your discussion guide, you wrote that during the 18th and 19th century, polyandry, where the marriage where the wife has more than one husband was actually practiced in rural China. I had no idea. How did you find out about this? Was this during your research for this book? During my research. And the really interesting thing is emperors had concubines. Yeah, all the time. Men had first, second, third wives, multiple wives, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. But that's on the wealthy end of the spectrum. So Mm -hmm. on the poor side of the spectrum in rural villages, most often it was the poor families that practiced polyandry when they didn't want to divide up a piece of land between their sons or they couldn't support more than a certain number of mouths, you know, then they would bring in a wife for the brothers to share, keep everything within the family. So it's basically just monetary purposes. Did the women have any say or power? I had no idea about that. And I didn't really know that was a real thing at all. I mean, even because it was to help impoverished families. Still remains a very patriarchal society. Yes, absolutely. Your world building is phenomenal. Your book has been compared to Handmaid's Tale. That's why I said it's scary too, because it sounds like it could be so real in its own way. What was the world building like? How long was that process? I'm a very linear writer. Everything I write, I start from the beginning. And that's just the way my mind works. When I started writing, my intention was to write a marriage tale. And so I was thinking what sorts of characters I should have. So the excess male are usually men on the lower end of the socioeconomic ladder, less educated, no financial resources. So that was my first character, the excess male. Then I thought about what sorts of men and women, if I took away financial considerations, would consider this type of a marriage. Mm. And so those were my other three characters. And I just started writing. Probably a fifth of the way through, 
I realized that the story kept getting darker and darker and it was a marriage tale plus a dystopian novel. Mm -hmm. (laughs) That was not something I was familiar with because I mostly wrote contemporary fiction up to that point. And so I had to kind of study up on it and figure out how to do it. And that, of course, involved a great deal of world building. But of course, I was already writing a story set in the future. And so the book started out as a short story. So in that short story, I had already imagined, oh, the China first and the tax system that would would give tax incentives to a family that I called advanced families that practice polyandry to help out the government. I had already worked out some of those little details. I just kept going with that. It was adding a, a piece of the puzzle at a time. And once you create it, then there's a place to add more. It wasn't something I thought of way, way ahead. Just little building blocks along the way that once you keep stacking them up, you create a base in which to create more. I know there are some authors who work in a linear way. Some of them have an end point to work towards in a linear form. For you, it didn't sound like you had an ending point. It sounded like you were going straight forward and seeing a very famous quote about the headlight. Just enough light ahead to see just enough of where you're going to move forward. Yes. That was very much the case with this book. When I wrote my first book, I had outlined the entire novel. That was very comforting because I knew where I was going, Mm -hmm. but I didn't always follow the outline. There was a crutch. With this book, I started out with a short story. I knew it was a marriage tale. The end point is whether or not they would get married. I wasn't sure what was going to happen along the way. This one, I'm glad worked out because 90% of the way there, I had to have a sit down session with one of my writing group buddies and say, okay, (laughs) we got to find an ending here or else my year of work is going to come to nothing. That's what I was wondering too. How are you feeling emotionally through this process? Because it's so linear and there was no outline for this specific story. Were you able to step back and see, oh, I like where it's going? Or were there moments where you were like, I'm writing as much as I can see right ahead of me, those headlights that that quote we were saying, but I'm not liking where this is swerving right now. Were there moments like that? I never really got off track. It somehow got there. But when I was in the editing process, my editor had me foreshadow the climax that I built to so that it made more sense. I see. I did a lot of front loading of a sense of danger to build up to the climactic scene. That's one of the fixes that my editor gave me. But all along the way, I was lucky that I landed somewhere. (laughs) But I think the scenes, because I worked that way, felt very organic and true to the characters rather than me imposing on the book, Mm -hmm. I hope, grew out of character motivations. With your characters' motivations, did you... As a behind-the-scenes peek of how you keep yourself organized or reminders of your characters and the choices that they would or wouldn't make, do you have little index cards for each character to remind yourself of this is exactly what they love, who they are, these are the choices that they would make, and this is something that they wouldn't go with? Was there anything like that just so that you stay on track and are reminded of your characters? I filled in an outline as I went, what happened in those scenes. And then my second and third time around, I kept a style sheet. There are terms I want to remember and always say the same way or remember how to spell my character's name. Idiosyncrasies about the character, how old they are, or Um, things like that. How long was this process writing from start to finish, starting with when it was a short story to then when it was completed manuscript for a novel? The first draft took about a year. Then it took probably another year, year and a half to edit it to what I felt was submittable shape for an agent. It took me probably another 
10 months to find an agent. And then it took the agent two or four months to sell it. From that point was another year and a half before it was published. (laughs) It was about five years. How long was the research process for it? I researched initially reading a bunch of things on the internet newspaper articles and journals, that kind of stuff. I like to actually research along the way because I feel it's more targeted. As I'm writing a scene, if I need to find out how something works, I'll just Google it as I write. Because I've also done research the other way where I spend all my time reading and reading and reading. I never get to the writing. (laughs) (laughs) It's an excuse for not writing. Now I try to be as targeted as I possibly can. What you find is most of the time exactly what you need. With the availability of the internet, you almost never have to leave your home. Yeah, that's true. I joke with my friends that I should thank Google and all the search engines in <laughs> my acknowledgement page because no. you write my book. <laughs> Actually, that would be the funniest thing ever. Please, if you no. do it for your next book, that would be genius. We have a listener question for you. It's from Judy Lynn. She's awesome. She said, wow, an excess mail sounds like a really interesting read. I can't wait to pick it up. My question for Maggie is about working with writing groups. What are the dynamics of her writing groups like? How do you feel they help you with your writing process? And thank you so much for answering the question. I actually belong to two writing groups. The Amazing. first one happened after my Stanford class bunch of us got together and read each other's things. My second writing group, I was invited into and they were three published authors and moms and they're all great people. My first writing group is actually tougher than my second writing group. Usually I show my work to my first writing group and after they read it, I'll show it to my second writing group. And between the two of them, I get all the feedback I need to make my corrections and my edits. We've been together so long. They're best friends, therapists. I was going to say, it sounds a little like polyandry over here. I find them just invaluable because you don't know what you've written until someone has read it and told you what works and what doesn't. After you've stared at that page for so long, you just can't see what you're doing right or what you're doing wrong. Is there one group of yours that still happens to have a track record of being stronger at giving you really strong pointers about plot and the second group would be really good at pointers for characters? Is there anything like that or they're equally amazing? They're actually equally amazing. You're so lucky. People move in and out and we've been together a long time. They're really, really smart women who've read a lot. A couple of them have MFAs, a couple wow. of them published. They've seen the business. They know the writing and they can tell me in the nicest, gentlest way possible what's wrong with what I'm doing. You said earlier in our conversation that one of your writing groups formed after your Stanford classes. I'm going to unpack it a little more to give inspiration for our listeners who may be desperately seeking for writers groups. I absolutely stand by them and I believe in them too because I was in a writing group two years ago. It was my home. I loved it. Like you said, it felt like a therapy session. Of course, you guys were together for a while. I was only with them for about a year. So I didn't really have the chance to connect to the point where it's best friends level. But my goodness, let me tell you, the one leading the writing group became my mentor, someone I look up to absolutely. And I have so much deep respect and admiration for my fellow writing classmates who showed up and they were parents as well. They were published authors working on their own. And it definitely gave me a place to always look forward to and made me feel less alone. The writing group, you know this firsthand, it is remarkable. And when you find the right one, it does wonders and not just for your writing, but you as a human being. That's something I do mention sometimes throughout the podcast is that 
I felt I expanded as a person. I'm not experienced at finding writing groups. It was just by luck for me. When you guys met up for one of them after the Stanford classes, I'm wondering maybe some listeners might resonate with this and they could also follow suit. Was this something that you rallied them together or one of the students rallied everybody together saying, hey, come meet up at my home once a week or once a month? Or was it something that was led by one of the teachers? There was one of the other students. If you want to do it, you should be the person deciding who you want to invite. Because mm. after you take a workshop together, you have a pretty good idea who's writing you like, critiquing style you like. You can probably hand select a really nice group of people. You make the initiative to put people together. The really fun thing about writing groups is initially you may not know each other, mm-hmm. but you know their way of thinking. Most intimate things about people come out in their writing. It's a really interesting way of getting to know someone. You may not know the things that are happening in their lives, but you know how they think, their sensibilities. It's a really cool way to make friends. You must have felt so popular. <laughs> like You were chosen oh. and then you were in two groups. Most workshops practices of not responding, just listening to mm. people's comments. It's also really helpful, mm-hmm. really helpful way to run a workshop. Learning to listen to criticism and encouragement and, and suggestions is a really good thing to develop because it's really hard to listen to critique a piece that feels so personal, right? Yes. It's a good human skill to develop. Too. <laughs> yes, it does. <laughs> that was one of the things I was trying to say, but you said it way more articulately. I talk so much. I learned from my mom. She talks so much. You think I talk a lot, but my mom was 10 times more. And my mom, she doesn't realize she cuts people off. She heard this episode, she'd be furious. (laughs) Sorry, mom, love you, mean it. Me... I learned to listen. I remember my mentor was like, Yin, shh, not your turn. I got told in front of everybody. My mentor is like 75 years old and she's like, girl, you better listen. And she's so snappy because she's done Broadway in theater in New York City before. So she will tell it like it is. I kept my mouth shut. I was able to use that and implement it for podcasts. (laughs) Something else that I was wondering, you said that it was one of your classmates that was the one who was selecting and inviting people to gather. Has it always been in her home that she's hosted? Yeah, we take turns. So no one has the responsibility of half single time. And it's nice to go to people's homes, you know? Yes, it is. For me, it would make sure to keep me on track with being tidy. Have you been to retreats? No, I haven't actually. Would you ever host a getaway retreat with your group? That would be super fun. Oh, you mean our group going together oh, out? Well, both. No, that's a great idea. Hey, y'all, let's go to Bora Bora and write for the weekend. Let's drop all the kids and let the hubbies take care of them or babysitters and let's just do our thing and write. Thank you for diving into that. That was so helpful, especially for the listeners. because I know some of them in our private Facebook group, We run one just for listeners. They sometimes are looking for critique partners and tips on writing groups. So thank you for that. One more thing on that. I find that I like a fresh read. So I save some friends who I don't ask to read the book until the very, very end when I have a finished product. Sometimes when people have read it before, they remember something else or the perspective is not as fresh as it could be. I always set aside people who are non-writing group friends to read finished products for me. I love to have that too. That's really helpful too for them to hear. Maggie, thank you so much for all those amazing tips and advice about writing groups. And I know everyone's going to really appreciate it. I would also love to know what you're really excited about right now with your work, whether it's what you're currently working on or what you look forward to or anything to do with an excess mail that you'd love to share with us. Let's see. When I was done with an excess mail and still doing a little research, 
I found out that there was a group of girls that are called Heihaize, which oh. translates to black children or yeah. shadow ghost children. And these were children born outside of wedlock, perhaps, children born to families that already had one child and you're only allowed one huko, which is a household registration per family, or girls who were first born, but their families wanted to save their household registration for a boy. They don't register this girl. So China currently has about 13 million of these. 13 million? According to a census, but some people suspect it could be two or three times that number. I was going to say people are probably not going to document all of them. Right, right. And so I was absolutely fascinated with this because these shadow children, they're not legal. They don't have any legal rights. They cannot go to school. They can't get hospital care, ride trains. They can't own property. They don't exist, basically. That is chilling. Another unintended consequence of the one-child policy. And so I was really fascinated with this. And that's the topic story idea that I'm working on for a next book. Yes, please. Seriously, Maggie, I'm putting out good vibes. I know it'll come out. I want that story to be out. And I would love as many people in our community to hear about it. And hopefully from our community, we'll spread word of mouth. That's something so important to get out there. I'm so excited for you to work on that, Maggie. I think that's incredible. Thank you. Staring at a blank page is a hard work again. It's scary, isn't it? It's scary. I I have no idea where I'm going. Do you ever get creative block? Not so much writer's block versus laziness. (laughs) You're like, Let's be real. Let's be honest here. It's called hashtag lazy. I sit myself in front of my computer. I think on the page as I'm writing, I'm not one who can think through an entire plot in my head. I find that if in front of my computer working, something will come. And the trick is actually getting your butt in front of the computer and doing the work. That is so Uh, true. And that's what a lot of listeners said. The biggest takeaway they get from this podcast is that every author says there is no easy formula. You just sit your ass down and do the work. That's it. That's the only magical formula that they can give. You got to show up to Mm -hmm. do the work. That's basically it. For the three rapid fire questions, first one to kick it off, if you have any tips on writing query letters, because we have a lot of listeners who are in the query trenches right now. Oh gosh, this is a hard one because writing that query letter is so tough. I think this is where you need a lot of feedback from other people. Write your query letter and show it to as many people as you can who would be willing to help you. Say, you know, is there a hook here? Is this a book that you'll want to read? And you ask them to be honest because most people have a hard time saying this is bad. And if you can listen to that and keep working on it until you have something that can grab people, that'll be very helpful. That was helpful. Now, second question is, what are some small manageable steps you'd advise writers to take every week towards accomplishing their writing goals? I don't have a big word count every day. I write about four days a week. If I can get 500 words, then I let myself off the hook. You mean 500 words a day or 500 words that week? Two pages a day, basically. Two a day. That's not a lot, but if you can do do that at the end of the week got eight to ten pages and when you have something on the page you can work on it my advice would be write every day if you can give yourself a little target just keep working at it over time you'll have something love that just put your butt down and get those words out yep doesn't have to be a huge overwhelming goal each day but just a little bit of something definitely does add up at the end third and final do you have any favorite books or books that changed your mind about fiction that you remember reading growing up some authors like to recommend craft books on writing? So let me tell you some of the favorite books I've read in the last two years. I love The Czar of Love and Techno by Anthony Mara. 
I love The Signature of All Things by Elizabeth Gilbert. And I love We the Animals by Justin Torres. Have you read Jay Chang's The Wangs Versus the World? No, I saw the cover circulating around on the internet. I had to look into that. I love that book. The very interesting thing about that is the Chinese in there, there's a lot of Chinese in there and it's completely untranslated. <laughs> it's pretty awesome. It's a great story, but the Chinese in there, just as it is, it makes the characters completely central to the American experience experience. No apologies, no translation. This is their world. You just sold it. (laughs) And the story is fabulous. Her writing is so lively and so dense, and it's just packed with Chinese references, modern references. The characters in there are very modern day, as American as can be, very hip, very fun characters. I think you'll love the book. Thank you. I'm really excited to read that. I want to mention my favorite craft book. It's actually a book for screenwriting called Story by Robert McKee. Have you heard of that? Yes, Robert McKee. Absolutely. That book increased my story IQ by like a thousand percent. It teaches you on the micro level how to build a scene, how to build beats, what turns you need. But it also talks about stories on a macro level, the archetypal story, how to build an arc, what are the elements you need. It's a 400-page textbook that I think every writer starting out should read this, and it'll catapult you to a different level before you even start. Thank you so much for that. I think the listeners are going to love that. That also reminds me, I'm not sure if you heard of this one, John Truby's Eight Steps to the Anatomy of Story or something like that. I definitely butchered the title. I took an extension course from UCLA where the professor took what John Truby was teaching and implemented it to novel writing and Uh it broke it down to beats as well so that you understand the eight story act and broke down each part. So it almost reminds me of the one that you mentioned. That's going to be really helpful for everybody. Thank you so much, Maggie. Thank you too for having me. It was a true delight to with you. Thank you. And that wraps up our episode with Maggie Shen King. Maggie, thank you so much for such an informative and inspiring conversation. I loved chatting with you. Listeners, thank you so much for hanging out and listening in. As always, please say hi to Maggie on Twitter at Maggie Shen King. For the books and resources mentioned in her episode, Head over to 88cupsofteacom slash podcast slash Maggie-Shen-King. If you enjoyed today's episode or if it helped you in any way, I would love to ask for your support in taking a moment to subscribe to 88 Cups of Tea on iTunes and please leave a rating and a review. Producing a podcast takes a lot of time and we put a lot of heart and soul into making 88 Cups of Tea the best that it can be. When you take those specific actions of subscribing, leaving a rating, and a review, that really helps our show become more visible to new listeners who haven't heard of us before, and we're really trying to get the word out about our podcast. Thank you so much in advance for helping us grow our community. Don't forget to join our private Facebook group if you want to hang out with fellow writers and listeners from 88 Cups of Tea. I am so excited to see you in there. You can find us at facebook.com slash groups slash 88 Cups of Tea. Have a wonderful and super productive rest of your week and good luck with NaNoWriMo. Hey guys, it's me again. Thanks so much for listening in on 88 Cups of Tea. Go create something magical today and I'll catch you in the next episode. Bye.